Uh, well, hey, I am uh, going to invite you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. And while you are doing that, I just want to share with you uh, that this week I was in Anaheim. Uh, we had our annual convention for our denomination. We are a four-square church, and uh, we are super excited to be able to celebrate the fact that our denomination this year turns 100 and that's a significant thing. Not everything uh, that starts makes it to 100 years old. And there was a pretty radical move of God in the 1920s. And one of the things that happened was the birth of this denomination that we call the Foursquare Church. Now, we are a Foursquare Church. Actually, we're not too far away from our own 100th birthday as a church, uh, because the Foursquare Church, they started sending out people to plant churches all over the world, and actually we have been a missionary movement as much as a church planting movement. Um, we've been uh, missions focused around the world as well as uh, here in the United States. And, uh, you know, I was, I've been at a lot of conventions since I've been a pastor, and in fact, actually, the first convention I ever went to was when I was uh, uh, just a young guy on staff uh, here at this church and uh, went to a convention in Anaheim. I've been to several around the nation. And I, I, something that, that is kind of a, a takeaway or a marker from a lot of the conventions is, man, we've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> uh, a lot of work to spread the gospel, for sure. But it has seemed like Man, there's just a lot of things that God wanted to do in our own movement to bring something uh, fresh life, uh, something of some clarity on some things. And, you know, I walked away from this convention probably more encouraged than I have ever been walking away from a Foursquare convention. That's not to say all the other ones were bad. I've been in some pretty incredible, great moments. But it just feels like God is doing something fresh and new. And the exciting thing about that was, I'm telling you all this for a reason, it, it, it's exciting to me because it, it reminds me that what God is doing here in our church must be a, a move of God, a genuine thing that God is doing as, as people are, are giving their lives to Jesus in new ways and there's breakthrough happening, that God is doing that not just here. And it reminds me also that we are a part of something larger than ourselves. Uh, we're, something, we're a part of something that is older than us, uh, and, and that means that it is, uh, it, for a lot of different reasons, it gives me encouragement to, to be able to say, these things show me that, that God is in the church still. In fact, I heard prophetic words and saw miracles this week at a, at a convention of pastors. And I've seen miracles and heard prophetic words in this church. God is on the move. Friends, if you are feeling weary in any way in your faith and you are wondering if God is still in the miracle and prophecy and breakthrough and revival business, he is. Amen? And so, God, we thank you for your move in the world. We can't force these things. We can only catch the wave. And so help us, God, to be a church that catches the wave of your movement in the world and in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen? Amen. Okay. Well, you are hopefully by now in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to continue our walk through the book of Ephesians. We are, uh, we've been talking about Ephesians 4 as Paul gives us these uh, kind of proverb statements. And uh, so as we come to the end of Ephesians 4, Paul gives this list of different things. Hey, don't do this. Do this instead. This is what 
uh, good Christian living looks like. And so, so, so that we can root this back into our larger passage, listen to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32 one more time, and then we'll narrow our focus for today. So Paul writes, therefore, putting away lying, <clears throat> speaking the truth, each one to his own neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he should do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, and shouting, and slander be removed from you along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. So today we're going to narrow our focus on verses 26 and 27, which again, you heard me read those a moment ago, but it says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Now, can I just say to you as we get the ball rolling on this message that I have found in my experience as I've talked to a lot of people who've gone to church for a long time, that this is one of the most misunderstood little verses in scripture. It's just one of those verses that sort of gets thrown around so much, and we don't actually do the work to dig into what it means. I remember being told as a young person, hey, be angry and don't sin. Don't you dare let the sun go down on your anger. And I had a certain kind of framework for what I thought that meant. And I'm not so sure anymore that I was right. And it made me feel a way about anger, my own anger and your anger. It made me feel some things and think some things that I'm not so sure that God actually agrees with. And I'm not so sure that this is actually what Paul was trying to say. And can I also tell you that in my own life, anger has not just been some out there other thing that you all deal with. Anger isn't something that I just saw for the first time in 2020 uh, when, you know, I turned the news on. (gasps) People are angry? That doesn't ever exist in the church. No, I've seen anger in the church. I've seen anger in my own relationships. And friends, I've wrestled with anger in my own life. In fact, I think today I'm going to be talking to you about one of the issues in Scripture that I have personally dealt with more than any other area of sin or failure or weakness or struggle in my entire life. So this is personal to me, but I'm also sharing this from a place of victory and a place of saying, if you are looking at this anger passage and going, Tim, I really wish I had gone on vacation today too, and and I I don't want to hear this sermon, uh, just sit with me for a few minutes, and I, I think that you will find hope and encouragement today. My goal today is to help clarify what Paul actually meant, maybe show you some ways that anger shows up in your life, and maybe give you a chance to do something something constructive with your anger. Now, I just want to go on the record here and say, um, I don't think that there is a single person that doesn't deal with anger. Okay, no no one's thrown a shoe at me yet. Uh, I, I think we're all on the same page. You might not like it, but you probably deal with it. 
Now, you might not deal with it to the extent that I have dealt or struggled with this in my own life and needed God to uh, really grow me up and set me free of some things, but we all deal with anger. Like, think about the last time you got cut off. I was driving somewhere with my family last night. We were going to go have a wonderful little watch the sunset moment with our family. We got milkshakes. We're driving down the road with our milkshakes, uh, and it was just a glorious moment. And I look to my right, and there's this tiny little blue car just pulling up. I could just barely see this tiny little clown car just pulling up right alongside me. You see, I'm already still dealing with this. Uh, and I look over, and this guy's on his cell phone texting while he's just flying past me, and then he doesn't turn his blinker on. I know. And he's all the way on the far right lane. And without it, turning his blinker on, without checking for his blind spot, which I was not in his blind spot. He could see me. He just flies right across all the lanes of traffic, and there's cars coming up behind him, slamming on their brakes. I may be dramatizing that a little bit, but slamming on their brakes. And he just flies all the way across. And you know what I did? I went... Fine. I'll show you the hand motion that I did, too. Hands on the steering wheel, and I went. <laughs> Sharon's in the passenger seat, and she goes, what are you doing? I go, you didn't see that? She goes, no, what are you doing? <laughs> what is this? What is that going to solve? So I, you know what I said? Next time, I'll honk at him. That'll really show him. And then the Lord reminded me of what I'm going to preach about today. And he said, you better be careful. And then I said, no, Lord, this is righteous indignation. And the Lord said, you better stop right now. <laughs> so I took a couple of deep breaths, and I kept driving, and I enjoyed the sunset. Uh, so even though I think I am greatly delivered from my, uh, the serious version of anger in my life, uh, I still deal with it, and so do you. You've all driven on the freeway, right? You've all, you've all been around people. You all went to Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. You all, like, lived. Remember high school? Okay, all right. We're going to have to start a prayer service if I keep going. Let's begin at the beginning. Paul, Paul says, be angry but don't sin. Now, can you just say what the Bible actually says for a second? Just say it out loud. Look at your neighbor and say, be angry but do not sin. Okay. Be angry but do not sin. Let, let's begin by defining what Paul talks about. Then we'll clarify why I wanted you to actually say the Bible out loud. Uh, the, the dictionary would define, so our modern language, English dictionary, would define the word anger as a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. I was definitely feeling annoyance at little blue car guy yesterday, right? Certainly some displeasure. I don't know if this counts as hostility, but I was, for just a little bit, I was a little bit angry. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul's actually not just making this idea up. He's actually drawing on an old idea. 
he's actually quoting or referencing uh, Psalm 4, verse 4, which says, Be angry and do not sin. Reflect in your heart while on your bed and be silent. Selah, which that word Selah means, uh, by, by the way, that's my daughter's name, but uh, we, we actually drew it from places like this in Scripture. And that word Selah is a musical pause. It's a break. And the, the word itself is an instruction to the reader. It says what you just read, pause and reflect on that. Stop and think about it. So listen again what the author of the psalm says. Be angry and do not sin. Reflect in your heart while on your bed and be silent. Selah. Stop and think about it. Right? So as Paul is developing this this Ephesian proverb list, he includes this idea of be angry and do not sin. He's actually drawing on the book of Psalms, on this ancient wisdom book. But the question is, why would Paul do that? Why did Paul feel like he needed to take this Old Testament command and move it into the New Testament? Well, I would propose to you that Paul did it for the same reason that all the other people did it who put it in Scripture. Did you know that anger is like all over the Bible? Let me just shotgun some at you for a second. These won't be on the screen, but just listen. See if you can pay attention to some themes that stand out to you as you listen to a, a handful of the many places where anger is referenced or talked about directly in Scripture. Psalm 37 verse 10 says, Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but one slow to anger calms strife. Proverbs 22, verses 24 through 25, don't make friends with an angry person, and don't be a companion of a hot-tempered one, or you will learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool... <clears throat> a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person holds it in check. Proverbs 29, 22. An angry person stirs up conflict, but a hot-tempered one increases rebellion. Okay, enough Proverbs. Ecclesiastes 7, 9. Don't let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the heart of fools. Okay, this would not be the right moment for you to like talk to your neighbor and say, I think I recognize you in Scripture. <laughs> Let's get out of here. Let's go to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Jesus says, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, he writes, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. You cannot get to God's righteousness through human anger. So why is anger all over the Bible? Because anger is potentially very dangerous. It is incredibly destructive if not dealt with appropriately. In fact, anger can have both physical and spiritual ramifications in our lives. I mean, just as you were listening to those passages of Scripture, you could see how anger destroys relationships. The Bible talks about it, and so does your experience. Anger ruins friendships. It ruins lives. And then furthermore, it has this spiritual ramification. I mean, you've got to be in a spiritual problem if the Bible says when you're dealing with anger, you're a fool if you don't respond the right way. If you embrace it or if you chase after it, you are a fool. 
Anger has a way of breaching our relationship with God. Anger is destructive. It destroys lives. Again, this is, this is why the Bible says the person embracing Scripture should be avoided. Don't make friends with this person. Now, there's actually not a lot of people in the Bible that God would say, hey, don't make friends with that guy. The angry person is one of them. But here, here's what I want you to notice. I, I want you to understand that it is not simply being angry that is the problem. After all, remember that Paul did not say, never be angry. He wrote, be angry and do not sin. This is what you said to your neighbor. Be angry. Go ahead and be angry, Paul says. But make sure that in your anger, you don't commit sin. So what does this tell us? First of all, really just right there on the nose, right? Right, right there up front. It is possible to be angry and not be in sin. It is possible. You can do it. That doesn't mean you should go figure it out. Like, let me test all the ways that I'm angry and find out which one God says I, I'm in sin about. Don't, don't go having fun with this. The goal is this. The goal is either to avoid sin when we are angry, or, or the, the other version of this goal might be to be angry about the right things. If it's possible to be angry and not sin, then I would propose to you that it is possible to be angry about the right stuff. Right? See, this is where we come back to James chapter 1, where he says, human anger, human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. So there's a specific kind of anger that is problematic. It's yours. It's my kind of anger. Which means there must be another kind of anger. We'll get to that in a minute. But Dallas Willard wrote, Anger indulged instead of simply waved off always has in it an element of self-righteousness and vanity. Find a person who has embraced anger, and you find a person with a wounded ego. As a person who has wrestled with unhealthy anger in a lot of ways in my life when I was a younger and more broken person. I can tell you what Dallas Willard is talking about here is 100% correct. Find a person who has embraced anger, not experienced anger, but embraced it. And you will find a person with a wounded ego. So simply put, sinful anger happens when we take sinful action or hold sinful motives. So what are you angry about? If you're angry that God asked you to do something you don't want to do, you're in trouble, right? If you're angry that the preacher said something that you don't like, problem. If you read the Bible and you are angry at what it says, this is all bad anger, right? If you're angry because someone who hurt you gives their life to Jesus and now God is blessing them, you have a problem. I'm just listing ways that I've been angry, by the way. <laughs> but maybe there's a, there's a good way, a, a good version of anger. We don't, we don't want to go chase it down. But we have to make sure that we are clear. In, the, in their pulpit commentary, H.D.M. Spence and Joseph Exel write, Our Lord did not make anger a breach of the sixth, sixth commandment. But being angry with a brother without cause. So again, 
what are your motives in your anger? It's sinful motives that drive us to sin in our anger. And obviously also, therefore, uh, sinful action that produce sin in our lives. Now, the first thing that we can be hopeful about today as we talk about anger is that God actually sets a model for what it looks like to be angry and not sin. And so the first person we want to look to as a solution, as a source of hope for us, is God himself. Let's look at a few things that God gets mad about. That sounds like fun to do at church, right? Here's the first thing that we see that God gets mad at. God gets mad at religious abuse. In Matthew chapter 21, there's this great story. We usually talk about it around Good Friday coming into Easter during Holy Week. It's a very popular story around that time of year. And it says, when Jesus went into the temple, he threw out all of those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the, and, and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written. Now, I just want you to think for a second that your sweet, loving Jesus it says, said these things. I propose yelled these things. Okay, so Jesus can be a yeller. I'm not going to yell at you because I've got a microphone, but just let's, let's just imagine for a second that it says, he said to them, I propose he yelled at them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The problem that Jesus had in this moment was that people were coming in for worship and they were having to make animal sacrifices. And if they didn't bring animal sacrifices with them, they could go into the temple and they could purchase animal sacrifices and they were being extorted. And this was wrong. This was, this was uh, people using worshipers for their own personal gain. This is what we would call religious abuse. Jesus was angry that religious leaders were manipulating people for profit. Anytime a religious person uses God or the church for personal gain, God gets angry about that. So much so that he literally wants to come in and overturn the systems that we have built up to use people for personal gain in the church. So maybe we can have a side conversation some other time about the places where you have seen this happen. Uh, but think about the ways that you have been angry about the ways religious people and even religious leaders have used religion to abuse people. And if you're angry about that, God would say, good, me too. Of course, then the question is, how do you respond to that without sinning? That is the question. You, you don't get to do whatever you want. And by the way, I'm not sure that we all have the right and the privileges to go in and flip tables. After all, you didn't die for these people, so you don't necessarily get to flip their tables. Just context. We can talk about that later. Here's the second thing we see God being angry about. I think we see God being angry anytime that people are kept from him or his kingdom. There's another story in Mark chapter 10. It says, people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. So, so these parents are saying, I want to bring my kid to the rabbi so that he can lay hands on them and bless them, bless my children. Because there was this growing understanding that Jesus may very well be the Savior, the Messiah, who was promised. But the disciples were like, hey, no kids. He's too busy for kids. And it says in verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, when I was a child, I heard this verse as an invitation to come to Jesus. 
And I always heard it in, with like arms wide open, Jesus. Let the little children come to me. Let, let the little children, hey children, come. Little children, come. But that's not actually how this verse is written, is it? Jesus was indignant. Have you ever been indignant and indignantly said, hey, come over. Come hang out with me. I just wanted you to know you're welcome in my presence. No, Jesus is indignant. He's probably saying this at his disciples. You know, he's like mean mugging Peter when he says this, right? Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, Peter. I knew I would be able to redeem that. The third thing that we see God being angry about is sin. God is angry at sin. In fact, Scripture uses words like hate and wrath to describe the way God feels about sin. In Proverbs chapter 6, the Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him, which is just a fun little poetic thing. It's not that like God was like, oh, wait, hold, seven. There's actually seven. I forgot about the seventh. It's just a poetic thing to emphasize there are seven. Here are the seven things, arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, fear, uh, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. And it doesn't go well for these people, by the way. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. When God sees sin, he has an emotional response to that. He probably feels very, very many things, and one of them is anger. God hates Sin. He hates it. Now, let's just be very clear here, because this is the moment where we begin to internalize something that we should have no business internalizing. Because this is the moment where some of us actually turn off listening to the fullness of what God is trying to say here and internalize a self-condemnation. And we say, you see, God is mad at me. This is why I can't get any blessings in my life. This is why it goes better for everyone else because God is angry at me. This is why I know I'm not good enough because he forgave everyone else's sins, but you guys don't know what I did. Jesus knows, and he hasn't really forgiven me. He's angry at me because he hates sin. He hates sin. He hates it so much, and I'm still a sinner, and he hates me. But this is not what the full counsel of Scripture actually teaches. Scripture teaches us that the wrath of God is absolutely and certainly and ultimately poured out on sin and sinners. And this is why Jesus came, so that you don't have to be one of those anymore. Now, do you still sin, Marcus? Okay, me too. Good. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't the only one in the room. Whew. So Marcus and I are still sinners. Where does the wrath and anger and hatred of sin go? 
goes on to Jesus on the cross. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So does God hate you? Is God angry at you? Because you sinned yesterday? Because I, at the guy in the car? No! No! What does God hate? Sin. What does God hate? Those who deliberately sin in order to harm other people. What does it say? It says uh, in Proverbs, listen again, feet eager to run to evil. A heart that plots wicked schemes. God hates these things. A lying witness who gives false testimony and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. So here's the question. Is God mad at you? I don't know. Are you deliberately disobeying him repeatedly all the time and like just thumbing your nose at him? If you are, I mean, I'm shocked you've made it this far in this sermon. I'm just saying you're probably not in the room. You're probably not even asking the question. Where does the hatred and the wrath and the anger of God go? Those who refuse to receive his grace and love and forgiveness in the function of repentance, those who don't humble themselves. And you know how beautiful and big and large the love of God is? Is that even those who currently still resist the love of God, God's love for them is so great that all he wants is for you to go and tell those people that God loves him so that they also don't have to receive the wrath of God because the last thing he wants is to pour his wrath out on any single human being because God's love will always override his wrath for those who come to him in repentance and humility. Does God hate you? He loves you so much you can't even begin to understand it. Is God angry? Yes. He's angry at the things that are holding you down, the things that are ruining your life, the things that are hurting you. Imagine if I was walking around. Uh, we were down at downtown Disney at the convention center at Anaheim. Remember? Imagine if I was walking around at the convention center and my daughter Hannah picked up a backpack and I happen to know that in that backpack, someone has snuck a bomb. And that bomb is ticking, and it is going to blow up, explode, and kill her. And probably harm some people around her as well. How do you think I'm going to respond to that as a dad? Well, Hannah, I certainly don't want your feelings to get hurt, so I'm just going to calmly say to you right now, if you feel like it, you know, whenever you're ready, if it's in your plans for the day, don't want to step on your toes, but I don't like the color of that backpack. Do you think you could just put it down? Isn't it interesting that we make it about something that it's not? Right? Isn't it interesting that, that if I come up to Hannah and I go, Hannah, take the backpack off right now and run away. What am I doing? I'm saving my daughter's life. Am I angry? You bet. Am I angry at Hannah? Of course not. Of course not. But isn't it interesting that when God does this to us, we go, how dare you talk about my backpack? It's my backpack. Or we go, oh, God, God hates me because I picked up a backpack and he didn't like the backpack. I'm terrible. No, God's like, no, no, you're so good. It's just that that backpack is going to murder you. And I'm trying to get you to get it off of you before it kills you. 
So, friends, God is angry at sin. And you should be thankful that his response to anger at sin in our life is Jesus. And then maybe we also can have the same response to anger at sin in our own lives, right? Maybe we also can see the sin in other people's lives and not be angry at them, but be angry at the sin and love people into freedom and the kingdom instead of yelling at them. You see how this one verse misappropriated has done so much damage in the world and the church? I mean, there's, there's more. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. But it's very, very important that we paused there to clarify. Jesus gets mad at sin, not the sinner. And then his response is always, God proves his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's Romans 5.8. God's angry at the devil, at sin, at anything that destroys the life of those he loves, which is every human being. Okay, so now, now that we've said all of these things, now we can begin to move towards uh, uh, the end. This is relatively easy after that. The next thing that Paul says then, and it begins to make sense, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And there's certainly a lot of misunderstanding that happens here, right? Like at first glance, it's a, it sounds like Paul is saying, hey, if you're angry, you better not fall asleep. Which, by the way, is how I heard that. At least, I don't know if someone meant to tell me that when I was a kid, but that's how I understood it. And for a lot of years, I thought, if I'm angry, I'm not allowed to go to bed. You got to go have a conversation with the person. You got to fix the thing. You got to resolve the stuff, Right? And by the way, this also can be seen as a place that leads to religious abuse in the church because people actually get gaslighted over this. Gaslighting is a thing where when you do something wrong against a person and then you try to convince them that they're wrong or they did the bad thing or they're crazy for thinking that you owe them an apology. So just to be clear, like as an aside, if you wrong or hurt a person and then use this as biblical support to say, So you have to forgive me, or just let it go, or it's getting late. You just have to you just have to move on, because we have to go to bed. What the Bible says. Can I just tell you, friend, that's religious abuse. And how does Jesus feel about that? Oh yeah, he's angry about that. Let's stop doing that to each other, right? Okay. So, on the other hand. If this verse has left you believing that feeling any amount of anger is sin, then the only person that is being hurt by that belief is yourself. I I used to be like this. In fact, I had to have a therapist tell me that anger isn't a sin. It's an emotion. It's what are you doing with the sin, and why did it come? Those are the questions you have to be asking, right? So research actually links that this has an incredibly dangerous physical effect on our lives, as well as the emotional and relational effect that it has on us. Uh, Anger suppressed and withheld does damage to us, and it results in things like anxiety and depression and high blood pressure and hypertension. So we absolutely need to deal with our anger. You have it, and just because you have it doesn't mean you're a horrible person. It means you're a person, right? 
But Paul is not making a prohibition against anger by moonlight, which would be a great album title. Uh, rather, it's a, it's a command to, as soon as you see or sense anger in your life, you begin to do the work of reconciling that anger. This is what Paul is saying when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He's saying, when you realize you're angry, get to work on the right thing. Paul did not write, don't let the sun go down on your problems. He's saying, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So he's telling us, instead of taking sinful action when you are angry, respond to your anger with healthy reflection. Remember Psalm 4, verse 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Reflect in your heart while on your bed being silent. Selah, stop and think about it. Right? See, anger, it turns out, actually reveals more about us than the thing we're angry about. And so this is why we have to make sure that we have the right response to anger. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't sleep on your anger. That's a modern term now that means, hey, don't do nothing about that. Don't ignore that. Don't just let that simmer and fester and take root in your life. Don't sleep on it. Don't let the sun go down on it. Do something about it because when you're angry, it actually reveals what's going on in your own heart. Or as Dr. Henry Cloud says, anger is an emotion that rises to protect whatever we value. So anger can actually be a good thing if it reveals good and healthy values right? Sinful anger reveals unrighteous values that should never be acted on, or righteous anger reveals that we value what God values. So, but, but, but be careful. Be careful here, because even righteous anger, if reacted to improperly, can lead to sinful action, right? We have to be careful. So, what do we do when we experience anger? Well, we do what the psalmist said. We hit pause. We get silent. We sit. We reflect. I love the idea that says, reflect in your heart while on your bed. Hey, go be still and don't, don't fall asleep, but think about it. Reflect. Pause. The psalmist is not saying when something makes you angry, fix the problem before you fall asleep. He's saying, bring your anger before you come to a place of rest about your anger. Come to a place of rest with God, with your anger, and talk to him about it. So the work of resisting sin when angry looks like laying in bed in silence, reflecting. It looks like pausing in a place of rest, and then prayerfully asking God to reveal your own values that caused you to feel angry in the first place. Simply put, and if you walk away with a practice, Paul is telling us that when we feel angry, to hit pause so we can discover why we are angry and then make healthy and right choices from a place of rest instead of a place of wrath. So the reason that this is important is twofold. I've already mentioned to you that anger has physical ramifications and spiritual ramifications, and I think that the reason is that, that this is important is incredibly physical. In fact, if you'd indulge me by watching this video for just a moment, there was this campaign that went out in, uh, in England a few years ago called the Take 90 campaign, and you'll understand why they called it that after you watch this short video. 
uh, they will explain to us some of the physical things that are going on when we experience anger. You probably think I'm angry right now, yes? In fact, I am in complete control. What you're seeing is just how I'm feeling inside. The truth is, you can experience anger without letting it take over. Besides, what is anger anyway? It's nothing but a chemical reaction in your body, set off by the world around you, like a stranger being rude or a friend posting something hurtful, and boom, you're off system flooded with adrenaline, everything heightened. A person can do a lot of harm in that state, but not if you just wait a little. See, the moment you get angry, your body also begins the process of trying to calm down, flushing out the toxins that cause anger. And from end to end, this whole process takes just 90 seconds. So if you can wait it out, take yourself away from the situation, or simply think about something else, anger can't take hold. Just 90 seconds can make all the difference. Exactly the time it's taken to watch this. you feel angry, your body tries to begin the process of calming down. The question that your body is going to ask you is, are you going to let me? And in my personal experience, I was a master at exercising the anger muscle so that my body would get angry and my body would begin to try to calm down. I would say, nope, we're staying up here for as long as I possibly can. It's dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. But what would it look like for you when you experience anger in your physical body to just take 90 seconds? I think it would look like maybe sitting down, maybe taking some deep breaths. Maybe it would look like uh, pausing slow and slowing down long enough to ask yourself these kinds of questions. Why am I angry right now? What value of mine has been violated? What does God say about this value and about my anger? And, and what would Je how would Jesus respond to my anger or to this person? Just 90 seconds. The, one of the therapists that I had talked to previously uh, about anger said, you know, most, most men, fellas, I'm going to talk to you for a second. Most men um, have actually been so familiar with resisting that 90-second calm-down process that she said, in my experience as a therapist, it actually takes men 60 minutes to calm down. So she told me, she said, so the next time you feel yourself getting angry, you're going to have to block an hour until you can do this in a minute and a half. Man, that made me feel like so embarrassed. <laughs> like it takes me an hour, which should take 90 seconds. Why? Because I had worked the muscle 
of exercising anger so much that I had to actually learn how to atrophy that muscle by exercising the muscle of peace. And I would just say to you that that can only actually be done uh, by entering into a deep, meaningful relationship with the Prince of Peace, who gives peace that passes understanding, right? So then the second reason uh, that this is really wildly important is spiritual, because as it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 27, it says, don't give the devil an opportunity. And here's where we come to uh, where we want to begin to respond to this sort of message is by saying this, that anger is not just a physical problem. Anger is not just a destruction of your friendship. Anger is not just natural. It is also wildly spiritual. And anger embraced doesn't just make you a fool. It makes you susceptible to the work of the devil in your life. I was doing some research on this, and I looked up the word opportunity there in the original language. And in your translation, in your Bible, it might have said, don't give the devil a foothold. And the imagery there is like a person climbing up a mountain, and the foothold is the place you put your foot on the side of a rock so that I can cling onto the mountain and climb up onto the top of the mountain. And one of the actually stronger and more clear words that is connected to this root word here that we see as opportunity or you might see as foothold is simply the word chair or seat. Paul is saying don't give the devil a seat in your life. Hanging on to anger is like saying to him, hey, devil, just come and sit down right here. Just hang out with me. Just sit right here. And what Paul is further saying here, remember that he was a good Jewish teacher who met Jesus as the Messiah. And the Jewish understanding of a person sitting is that you, when you allow a person to sit in your presence, you're actually giving them a place of authority. So Paul is saying, when you hold on to anger and you don't do the work to respond to anger the right way and give that anger over to Jesus, what Paul is actually saying is you're giving the devil authority in your life. Don't give the devil a seat in your heart because then he will do what Jesus said he comes to do in John 10.10, 10, to steal and to kill and to destroy. Instead, we allow God to have the seed of authority in our life by pausing and saying, God, I'm angry right now. Will you come and sit in the seat of authority in connection to my entire life and especially in relation to my anger right now? Will you sit in that place? Show me what value was violated and whether or not my value actually brings you any honor. And I will give you authority, which means that if my value is misplaced, I'll change the value before I change who sits in the seat. And if that means I don't get to be angry about this thing anymore, then I'll give it over to you. But if it turns out that this is righteous anger, as you sit in the seat of authority in my life and you say, no, Tim, I'm also angry about that, then I won't run off and do whatever I think I should do. I will still let you sit in the seat of authority and I will do whatever you tell me to do. Even if in your anger about that, you tell me to, be, to do nothing. As Jesus encourages and Paul encourages turn the other cheek, and why not just be wronged? Sometimes that is God's response in his anger against sin. And I confess to you, my friends, that I don't always like it when God tells me to do nothing. 
but I've never regretted it. And so here's how we're going to respond. I'm going to turn this into a wildly practical uh, sermon illustration response moment. And then together today, we're going to take communion. We're going to come to the Lord's table. And we're going to come to the Lord's table, and then as, as we come and receive, go, going back to your, your seat and sitting, I, I want to invite you to think over the next few moments about the places where you have allowed the devil to sit with you and where you might want to boot him out of that seat and allow the Lord to sit there instead. In the back of the seats today, we placed a piece of paper. It's just a blank index card-sized piece of paper. And there should be some pens floating around. I, I asked Sharon about getting all the papers set up, and she said, if, you, if somebody didn't come with a pen today, just ask a mom sitting near you, because they always have pens, right? And, and then I said, and also ask a nerd, because we always have pens, okay? Uh, so if you need a pen, just uh, ask someone near you. And here's what you're going to do. Now, I, I just want to tell you in advance, what you're about to do, I do not want you to do this with the person sitting next to you. Okay? I don't even want you to show it to them. This is between you and the Lord, between you and God. And then you're not going to walk out of here. You're not going to take a picture of it and post it on social media. I'll tell you what to do with what you do with that piece of paper in just a second. But this is going to lead up to how we take communion together today. Grab one of those pieces of paper, and if you don't have one, throw a hand up, and someone will get one too. If you're sitting on the front row, just grab it from the, from the seat behind you. But, it, but you have a piece of paper in front of you, and I want to encourage you to write down the names of the people or write down the problems that make you angry. Go ahead and just take a minute and do that. R write down what it is or who it is that makes you angry. Now, you have permission over the next few moments to not feel like you're in sin by writing down the name of a person, okay? Go ahead and just write that down. By the way, if you don't have a pen yet, Sharon's got a couple. She can walk around. She'll run you over a pen if you still need one. practice like this, I'm tempted to just do this in my phone, but what you're going to do next with it means don't do it in your phone, because when I ask you to throw it in the trash, it's going to get really awkward. So there's, there's papers, if you're just doing this on your phone, um, grab a piece of paper instead. The practice itself will be helpful for you. Now, some of you wrote like one thing or two things and you're ready to go and move on to the next step so you can I'll give you I'll begin to give you some, some instructions if you're if you're writing a long list just keep on writing and you can do both of these things I think at the same time um, or you can move as when you're ready uh, on to the next step the next thing that we want to invite you to do today is to pray see a couple of points of instruction up there. Um, these are not the kinds of prayers that Pastor Greg used to joke about with us uh, years ago. He used to say he was going to pray hangnails on us if we ever like crossed him. He's like, I'm going to pray hangnails on you. We'd always joke about that. It's not that. We're not asking you to pray for God to like strike these people down with illness. That would be uh, to sin in your anger, okay? 
uh, we are asking and inviting you to pray that God blesses these people. That God resolves the problems that cause you anger. And I, I want to invite you to, to surrender through prayer control of those problems and those people over to God. Begin to do that now. Right where you're sitting. Name the person. God bless them. By the way, this is the pathway to forgiveness if you're angry at a person. Is to begin by blessing them in the name of the Lord. God bless them. that frustrates me, big and small, I surrender to you. God, I let you sit in the seat and I pray blessings over these people. Life Church, we have what's referred to as an open table, which means that you don't have to have signed a membership paper or met one of our standards to be able to take communion. You just have to have met one standard, which is that you are a follower of Jesus. The table is open if you are a follower of Jesus. I, I, would, I would just suggest, though, to you that if you're not a follower of Jesus, that communion is a serious moment. That while the table is open for you to come, please don't come before you reconcile your heart to Christ. It's very important. And, and furthermore, 
in the practice that I'm going to lead you through in just a moment, I just was reminded, I read this um, verse to you, and the Lord was just reminding me of this. I, I want to come back to this before we go into communion. In Matthew chapter 5, I read this portion of this earlier to you. It says, if you, you have heard that it is said that our, to our ancestors do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone, this is what I read to you earlier, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are, listen to this, if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Now, I don't believe that what the Lord is saying to us today is, if someone is angry with you, you don't get to take communion. But there is something here that I, I believe that the Lord is saying that as we come to take communion, and there's something of giving a gift to the Lord, please make sure that if you know that there is a person, I have wronged this person and I need to go and reconcile. Please make sure that you run to that opportunity. And if the Lord says, you know what? I, I would advise you not to take communion and not to participate in this practice until you've reconciled with that brother and sister. Then I tell you as your pastor, obey the Lord. And let's take communion seriously. Let's take the table of God seriously. Why? Because Jesus died for this. Right? So let's live fully in reconciliation, in relationship, in obedience. And if it means so, in repentance. Amen? So here's, here's the practice. It is a simple practice. It is so simple that, that I risk asking you to do something you might even find cheesy. Here it is. You wrote some names and some problems on a piece of paper. I'm going to invite you to begin to come now and receive communion. What that means is you're simply going to take a cup and a cracker from the tray. And then I'm going to ask you, just because there's going to be a bit of a line, to grab those elements and return back to your seat. And as you do that, as you come to receive, I want to invite you to leave your paper. There's a trash can next to each of these tables. And, and as you receive the blood and the body of Christ represented here as a cracker and a, and a cup of grape juice. Would you also leave something? Would you give over symbolically by if you need to crumple it or rip it or whatever and throw it in the trash can? And as you give over the places where you have either actually or potentially given a foothold to the devil in your life, receive the body and the blood of Christ. And then return to your seat and then we'll pray together. Would you practice this with me now? Together you can begin to come. As Bryce continues to play, I'm just going to invite you to come now and prayerfully give over and receive today. God, as we come and we walk up here, throw a piece of paper away.
would it be something more than a piece of paper? Would it be a stronghold? Would it be gaining freedom? Would it be surrender to you? God, even as we take this step, would there be something spiritual that happens by this physical practice? That as we give over to you our anger, we receive from you your grace and your forgiveness. God, would you even do a work supernaturally of delivering us from the places where we are bound up and have given a stronghold, a foothold, a seat of authority to the devil in our lives because of our anger? invite you to take communion right where you're sitting, to eat and drink in just a moment. But before you do that, this would be a great opportunity for you one more time. If there's any place in your heart where you're saying, God, I need to confess sin in my life. Or God, before I eat and drink, this representation of your body broken and your blood poured out so that I could be bought at a price and called a son or a daughter of the Most High God, before I take communion today, I give you my life. Take one more moment and handle any business that you need to handle with the Lord. And when you're ready, you can eat and you can drink and you can say thank you to God as you receive his grace, that his anger and his wrath at sin was put on Jesus instead of you. And you can give him thanks as you give him your life. Pray, and when you're ready, eat and drink.
God, as we take communion today. As we surrender and receive. We know that all of the working and the talking can only get us so far. We can never do what the name of Jesus can do. So after all of these things, God, I ask in the powerful name of Jesus on behalf of anyone in this room or within the sound of my voice who says anger is not just some little thing for me. It feels like a massive stronghold for me. It feels like the air that I breathe. I ask in the name of Jesus for deliverance and freedom and healing and peace. Prince of Peace, set us free. Set us free. If that's you, would you just simply ask? Like I had to ask and experienced the healing work of Jesus in my life. Jesus, set us free. Set me free. I give you over my anger. Remove the foothold or the seed of authority that the devil has in my life. Deliver me from this bondage to anger. Make me a person of peace and make me a peacemaker. And then finally, friends, as we prepare to move on from this point in our day, pray this blessing over you, over your family, over your heart and mind, and over this church. May you be radically and righteously angry at all the right things. And may you find peace in Jesus about the rest. May you be a peacemaker, and may because of you, the world be 